Hello Antarctic history buffs and fellow caffeine fiends. Today marks something of a gear shift in the agenda of iced coffee and I'm going to throw the chronology out of whack by discussing some of the most mysterious and tragic chapters in the history of human activity below the circle. Early in the Antarctic winter of 1982, the American station, Outpost 31, went silent shortly after a Condition 1 blizzard. Failure to respond to radio sked for 24 hours saw an emergency team depart McMurdo Station. On arrival, they found much of the base destroyed by fire and the frozen corpses of two base staff sitting outside the burnt-out base were the only two bodies found intact. The wreckage of a Norwegian Air Force Bell Kiowa helicopter lay in the snow nearby, compounding concerns about the Norwegian base, Thule, which went silent before the storm reached either station. Actually, none of this happened. I'm recounting events from the 1982 movie The Thing by John Carpenter, with a vague nod to the 2011 prequel also called The Thing. The Thing was based on a short story called Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. While John Carpenter's film was not the first attempt to capture the essence of Campbell's story, that honour going to The Thing from Another World in 1951, it did convincingly capture the paranoia, claustrophobia and isolation that act as key elements of the tension in Who Goes There? While the 1951 version took the story to the Arctic, with location filming in Glacier National Park, John Carpenter filmed in northern British Columbia, convincingly setting the scene, a remote research station in Antarctica. The opening scene, with a helicopter chasing a malamute across the snow while a mad Norwegian with a rifle tries to off the doggy, is worth the price of admission itself. While the transport situation is largely the same, communications technology has changed dramatically since 1982. And the isolation that both films played to is diminished in terms of alerting the outside world to problems encountered on the ice. Sixty years on, the thing from another world is considered culturally and aesthetically significant. Thirty years on, John Carpenter's version stands up well and is one of the few films in which the protagonists are being smart about trying their hardest to save themselves, thereby making their failures all the more frightening for the audience. What's so scary about one-dimensional idiots dying while they go canoodling in the graveyard on Murder Hill on the night the ghosts of cursed, slave-trading Nazis are said to roam the land carrying sighs and typing in Comic Sans? Nothing. What's scary is competent people with no foreshadowed karmic debt coming undone in spite of their best efforts. In that sense, John Carpenter was on the money. The expense of sending people to live and work in Antarctica means human resources consultants tasked with staffing small bases can be choosy about who they send, and dumbass jocks and vacuous cheerleaders don't get a Guernsey. So keeping the film aligned with the book worked in favour of making a compellingly frightening story. The 2011 prequel failed on this front, providing several characters who not only deserve to die for their folly, but whom you actively wish would hurry up and get et, because they've been made so monumentally one-dimensionally hateful. In 1966, the South Pole formed the setting for the Doctor Who serial The Tenth Planet, with Cybermen attempting to blow the world up with a Z-bomb. Dun-dun-dun! The base was staffed by an international coalition of military types, 
though the story was set in 1980. So perhaps BBC writers were privy to plans for a non-partisan base which came to naught. Isolation played its role in the story, and for 1960s British television it was pretty good, with a neat visual tag for the Cybermen's vocals, and the introduction of the Doctor's regenerative powers, allowing William Hartnell to bow out while the series carried on with Patrick Trofton in his stead. Doctor Who, in its 1976 iteration, took Tom Baker to the ice in the story, The Seeds of Doom. Rereading the Target novelisation of it recently, I don't doubt the writers borrowed heavily from Campbell's work, but the Antarctic sequence is largely foreshadowing for the bulk of the story, and only gave a taste of the thrills and terror a story can play to when couched in unassailable isolation and life-threatening weather. In On the Beach, the Vestfold Hills became the only safe habitat for humans in 2063, following a nuclear war. Isolation as insulation, a reversal of the isolation as cage motif, employed in the other works mentioned so far. Antarctica forms the backdrop for one of five set pieces in Michael Crichton's anti-anthropogenic climate change concern novel, State of Fear. With his equivalent of Dan Brown's Clever Guy, and sexy female expository MacGuffin, setting out across the ice in a tracked vehicle to find the mystery spot, only to be betrayed by one-dimensional villain guy, complete but for handlebar mustachios to twist in a dastardly manner, who cunningly employs his superior knowledge of snowcraft to send them tumbling down a crevasse. The hero, by solving a series of art history puzzles, manages to extricate team good from the icy tomb and foil the new pope's plot to... Um, I'm sorry, I read Crichton's book and some Dan Brown novels in quick succession and have a bit of trouble telling them apart. But in this case, Antarctica played a role in the story for its potential to alter sea levels should its ice sheets break up and fall into the sea. Evil Cabal, Proprietary Limited, were doing their utmost to precipitate a major ice sheet shelving incident to further panic humanity into thinking climate change had something to do with the industrial revolution and its knock-on effects, rather than just nice, healthy changes in atmospheric processes which leave low-lying Pacific nations underwater, as nature intended. The isolation didn't get much of a chance to influence the telling of the story, as the protagonists fly in and out again in a matter of hours. But isolation is not the author's interest. In this case, it is Antarctica as a potential threat to inhabited coasts elsewhere that saw it employed in the narrative. I have heard rumours about a sitcom set in Antarctica. Allegedly called Brass Monkeys. I haven't been able to find much out about it, but I keep an ear to the ground and hope one day to sit down with fellow event members and enjoy a good laugh, one way or another. It will also make for an interesting comparison against my own pilot script for a sitcom set in Antarctica. The Dolphin Hugger's Bible came to be something of a disappointment, as it reads more as the odd couple on ice, instead of whatever it was I had in mind when I started writing it. I can't remember what that was, and if I could remember, I might have written that instead. But come to think of it, all sitcoms are variations on the odd couple. Anywho, I was pleased with two of the jokes, and the one-armed Glaswegian bass engineer was a bit of fun. 
Alien vs Predator was set in Antarctica, but as the Alien franchise turned to shit, I tend to pretend nothing happened in that genre after 1992, and Alien 3 only just managed not to suck. So I won't be giving the Alien vs Predator travesty more than the cursory nod already granted. What is worth noting is a connection it shares with many other science fiction and horror stories set in Antarctica. With no human history prior to the 19th century, any obviously manufactured artefact turned up by characters in a story is automatically alien in origin, and therefore very interesting, and in need of secrecy, thawing, and toying with until it comes to life and kills everyone. If you find yourself part of an Antarctic research team which brings to light an obviously manufactured object, get on the radio and internet and heliograph immediately. Your employer might fire you, and you might find yourself blackballed from further work, but you will at least get a helicopter on site before whatever doom lies locked in the ice thaws out enough to eat you, mimic you, or impregnate you with chest-bursting doom juniors. Indications of design include dimensions in the ratio 1 to 4 to 9, triangular structures with a 3-4-5 configuration with accompanying integer scale indicators, pyramids, and spaceships. Also, keep your flamethrower handy. All well-stocked research stations offer ready access to flamethrowers, but if you can't find one on base, get the engineers on the case or get yourself medevac to safety ASAP. Knowing the symptoms and signs of cryptic, life-threatening conditions might be helpful in this endeavour. Cheers. Antarctica has been a backdrop for episodes of Stargate, Mythbusters and Matthew Riley novels. While logistical difficulties might preclude more live-action representations of the continent, I am surprised that it doesn't turn up more in written work. Then again, given the job Matthew Riley did in representing human endeavour below the circle, perhaps that's something to be grateful for. I won't pretend this has been a comprehensive discussion I've tried to cover several of the ways in which the continent has been incorporated into narratives. For stories in which the environment and isolation presented a challenge, and others in which the isolation offered sanctuary. The ice has been posed as a demon danger, and as a cleansing vista of spiritual and mental renewal, or similar bollocks. Keep in mind, though, that the air of romance and mystery Antarctica holds in the minds of many is sometimes more a product of the journals and publications of the people who explored the region than it is of a natural abundance of romance and mystery, and that their words often sought to obfuscate the reasons behind their efforts and preclude mention of the shortfalls of the people and projects they brought to the ice. But Antarcticans have rarely let the truth get in the way of a good story. This week I say thanks to Matt Koopman, who has been as generous with his time and feedback as he has been with his friendship over the years. I'd also like to apologise for any mispronunciations I make of foreign words. I do my best. I've got advice coming in from several people that can help me with pronunciations, but sometimes I just have to take a gamble and say Thule. Uh, I speak a bit of German. I speak Italian like a five-year-old, but my French is pretty shocking and things cascade out of control beyond that. As always, take care and appreciate your coffee.